Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson. In this episode, we talk to Daniela Strelchuk from Population Health Sciences at the University of Bristol and Professor Stan Zamet from the Centre for Academic Mental Health, also at Bristol University. And the paper is Identifying Patients at Risk of Psychosis, a Qualitative Study of GP Views in Southwest England. Now, previous research has shown that GPs have limited knowledge about the insidious symptoms of psychosis, but little is known about the difficulties that GPs face in identifying patients at risk of psychosis. This study used semi-structured interviews to explore that further and to understand GPs' experiences. And I started by asking Stan to tell us a little bit more about the background around identifying people at risk of psychosis. I think seeing somebody with a new onset of a psychotic disorder is probably going to be an uncommon experience for most GPs. Um, But research studies suggest there's a substantially larger pool of individuals in the population who are troubled by psychotic experiences such as hearing voices or having paranoid beliefs, even though these aren't severe enough for them to meet diagnostic criteria for a psychotic disorder. People who have these relatively mild or short-lived psychotic symptoms and have a decrease, um, decrease in the way they're functioning are regarded as having what's called an at-risk state for psychosis. Um, and they've got a relatively high risk of developing a, a disorder such as schizophrenia in the future. So in fact, about a third of them transition from this at-risk state to a psychotic disorder over a three-year period. We know that early intervention for this patient group in the form of psychological therapies and family interventions can decrease the rates of transition to psychosis by about 50%. And in fact, NICE guidelines recommend that people at risk should be referred without delay to specialist services. However, we also know from our experience that secondary care services are seeing fewer people than we would expect. GPs, of course, should play a key role in identifying these patients and referring them to secondary care. We know very little about the barriers that GPs face in identifying and managing this patient group. And that's where Daniela's research comes in. Yeah. Okay. So we've got this population of people who have got this at-risk mental state um, for psychosis, but clearly a bit of a gap between how many uh, we think are out there in the population and how many are making it into services. So Daniela, this is the opportunity for you to tell us a little bit more. What did you do in your study this time? Yes. So the aim of our study was to explore GPs' views and experiences of identifying people at risk of psychosis and the barriers and facilitators GPs face in identifying this patient group. So we interviewed 20 GPs in southwest England, and the GPs were informed that our research team were conducting interviews to better understand their experiences of identifying and managing these patients. Um, we used a topic guide to ensure consistency across the interviews, and all interviews were audio recorded and then analyzed. Yeah, so um, fairly standard qualitative process, obviously quite rigorous. Uh, tell us what you found. So um, two themes emerged. The first one related to the recognition of people at risk of psychosis, and the second one related to the facilitators and barriers to identification. 
So um, after the first few interviews, it was apparent that some GPs were not familiar with the term of being at risk of developing psychosis. So we started defining this term at the beginning of each interview. And um, our findings showed that some GPs did not recognize this patient group and others did, but said they rarely saw these patients. And these GPs explained that most patients they had seen with psychotic symptoms were either um, so severe that clearly met the criteria for a psychotic disorder or had a recurrence of their psychotic disorder. And those GPs who recognized this patient group were more likely to work in areas where secondary care services offered treatment to patients at risk of psychosis or to work in surgeries with a higher prevalence of young people. Yeah, so this is all about the recognition. We So there's an interesting point here, isn't there, that some GPs were rather black and white about this. I think the quote you give in the study is that, uh, you know, you can only have, you can't have a mild broken leg, it's either broken or not broken. Um, and another other the other example I've used is that you know you can some GPs think about psychosis as either being you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. But in fact, this whole concept of at risk um, is quite important, and um, you know something that not all GPs are hugely familiar with. You mentioned that there was a second theme there as well, facilitators and barriers. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what you found. Yes. So there were multiple facilitators and barriers to identification, and these could be uh, grouped into three categories. Those that related to patients, those that related to GPs, and those that related to the structure and provision of services. So um, of the patient-related factors, GPs said that patients at risk of psychosis did not usually consult in primary care, And potential reasons for not consulting included stigma associated with psychosis, fear of disclosing psychotic psychotic symptoms, and lack of awareness about what constitutes a mental illness and how to seek help. And some GPs also mentioned that those patients who did consult did not always feel comfortable disclosing psychotic symptoms and often consulted for nonspecific symptoms such as depression and anxiety. Yeah, yeah, and I think your study mentions that anxiety and depression often coexist, so they can be, they can make it harder to pick out when there are people who are these at risk of psychosis. So they're the, they're the main findings from that second theme. Anything else to add? Yeah, so um, of the factors related to GPs, some GPs felt that they did not have the skills to identify these patients and may not be asking patients um, questions that would help them identify this patient group. And some GPs mentioned that their focus was on more common mental health illnesses, such as depression and anxiety. And for example, once a patient met the criteria for a more common mental health illness, um, GPs would not always screen for psychotic symptoms. And this may be due to time constraints, um, GPs not remembering or having the knowledge um, to ask the right questions. Okay. And um, the third category of barriers um, and facilitators related to the structure and um, provision of services. So um, GPs said that establishing a good rapport would help patients build trust and put them at ease with disclosing psychotic symptoms, as well as help GPs place patient symptoms in context and aid with the clinical formulation. However, um, establishing good rapport was related to continuity of care, which was not Um, under GP's direct influence. And some GPs mentioned that there were difficulties with um, booking appointments 
and the appointments were usually too short, particularly as these patients struggled um, to bring the psychotic symptoms to the forefront of their narrative. And uh, many GPs also said that there were high thresholds for accessing secondary care services, and um, patients often fell through the gaps in that they were too severe for primary care, but not severe enough for secondary care services. Yeah, yeah some, some really interesting findings and some big you know, big ticket items there in terms of things to discuss, continuity, access to services, all sorts of kind of um, issues about the way that general practice is structured. Stan, I wonder if I could bring you in here just to give a little comment on what you think the major implications um, are for practice from your study. Yeah, well, I think um, it'd be helpful, of course, if there was increased awareness that many young people who end up developing a psychotic illness present in the early stages with non-specific symptoms such as low mood, anxiety, disturbances in sleep, which of course GPs are very good at picking up on, but also with these mild or vaguely formed hallucinations or paranoid beliefs that might not be picked up on unless they're specifically asked about. So one implication might be that GPs could routinely ask patients with depression or anxiety about psychotic symptoms, particularly if their depression or anxiety is more severe or not improving over time. And they could do this, for example, by asking whether the patient's ever heard or seen anything that other people cannot, or whether they believe that others are watching them or trying to harm them in some way. And this could be introduced by explaining that we know that these experiences are not uncommonly reported by people who are feeling depressed or anxious to make the patient perhaps feel more comfortable about discussing such experiences. I think where GPs feel unconfident in asking such questions then provision of training might be helpful. For example, by requesting this from local early intervention services or community mental health services. There are also short screening tools, such as uh, the six item primary care checklist that could guide GPs as to when a specialist assessment might be warranted. Finally, I think development of policies that support continuity of care uh, is likely to help with identifying and managing this patient group as of course I'm sure it is for other mental health disorders too. Um, however, at a policy level, what's really required is allocation of resources to facilitate access to specialised services and treatment for patients at risk of psychosis. And sadly, of course, this is lacking in many areas currently. There's no doubt that continuity of care, I think, is a very hot topic for all GPs and continue to be discussed regularly just now. Uh, you know, and the benefits to people with mental health problems or who are at risk of more severe mental health problems are obviously right on the list, as well as all the kind of chronic conditions and multimorbidity we've got going on as well. No doubt, though, that's very hard to the, you know, the mental health pathways is a really big feature of this as well, isn't it? And we were just talking before we started that I and I was saying that I remember that 15 years ago, certainly in my area, we had an early intervention in psychosis team. But yet it's very much the case that those don't exist in all places of the country. Um, and so there is a there, there are many gaps and shortfalls in services. Yeah, that's correct. Actually, there's a there's a few places that have really specialist early intervention services set up. But uh, AWP, for example, has uh, six EI teams, but only half of those will accept referrals um, and take on patients who've got at-risk mental states for psychosis. Yeah. Daniela, I wonder if I could get you to summarise the key findings from your study for us. Some GPs were not familiar with the concept of being at risk of developing psychosis and felt that they did not have the skills to identify these people. 
further barriers related to patients not presenting or disclosing psychotic symptoms and limitations imposed by the structure and provision of NHS services. And this includes lack of continuity of care, short appointments, and despite the nice guidelines for people at risk of psychosis, the high thresholds required in reality for accessing secondary care services. Daniela, Stan, that's been really wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again.